Yeah, it was a, it was a good, what was that? You won't give up. Good. Praise the Lord. So yes, two weeks in Israel, it was really, uh, a stretching and encouraging time. And, uh, just praise God for your prayers and for that support during that time. I felt really divinely helped, um, in, in the, all that teaching time. Uh, we'll be in Isaiah 48 today. And if I do slip into old American-ish sayings, please forgive me. I had to kind of adapt again because uh, most of the students, oh, almost all of them, bar except one, were from the states. So, um, yeah, I did say a few Isaiahs there, and which was met with a bit of quizzical looks and questionable, like, "Huh, what's that?" We're going to be talking about God's peace today, that Jesus is our peace. And in Israel, shalom is a common greeting, which means peace. But in English, it doesn't really convey how complex it is in the Hebrew, which in the Strong's, it's completeness, soundness, welfare, and peace. So it's wholeness. It's, it's, uh, it's a blessing pronounced upon someone, and it's primarily internal. It's something that's in, inside of us that we receive through Christ. It means to be reconciled, to be living in harmony with, to have tranquility of mind. Peace with God does not compare to a relaxing holiday or if you have abundant material wealth or earthly security. There's no comparison. Nothing compares in this life to the, the peace that we have through Christ. And Men have sought countless means to numb a uh, a convicted conscience. And the only way we can have that peace is through faith in Christ. And I, I as I was preparing for this study, it's really cool because what I taught tribe on Friday and today, I felt like, Lord, this is what I need to hear. This is not something that I have mastered and I have it all together and now I'm from this place of... Um, I guess, of understanding and, and total commitment that I can say, okay, well, this is what we all need to do. And, and I, I can say from experience, I, I've, I'm perfect in these areas. I like, Lord, I need to hear this message. This message is for me. I need to lay this to my heart. I need to, to make this real in my life because um, times have been difficult for me. The last three days, I was telling Andrew before the service, I said, you know, last night I had a pretty rough night's sleep. I was basically tendering my resignation for life um, and just saying, you know, I am despairing of things. And I know I shouldn't be despairing of things. I shouldn't be despairing of life. I shouldn't be the way I feel, but I feel terrible. Like, I, I don't feel like I'm experiencing your peace. I'm the last person in the world to preach on the peace of God with how I feel right now. But uh, God gave me a scripture and brought encouragement to my heart. He said, you know, have I not commanded you? Don't be afraid or dismayed. I'm with you. I won't leave or forsake you. You know, be strong and courageous. And so by his grace, I am happy to uh, share God's word today. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you... You speak to us when we need to hear your voice. And sometimes it's something that is difficult for us to receive. And I pray, Lord, 
that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would walk in your ways, that we would hear your voice today, not just hear it, but heed it. We'd walk in obedience to what you're saying. We'd receive of your truth. We would uh, judge you to be faithful and believe you as Sarah did in her old age when you said she would have a child and she laughed at the beginning, but Lord, you caused her to be fruitful because she trusted you and believed in you. And Lord, may we believe you today despite how we feel, despite uh, even the physical evidence that we can see, placing our whole trust in your word and in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would quicken each one of us to walk in your ways and to proclaim your praise for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I like in Isaiah Isaiah 26, verse 3, it says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And the mind is such an important uh component of the peace of God, where there is a decision we can make through the power of the Spirit to think on things that are pure and wholesome, and not to give place to the enemy with uh, uh, temptations or accusations, and to stay there in the place of uh, even conviction, but that we would repent and not be weary in doing good. Peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's more than a feeling. It's really a state of being. It's a position we have in Christ evidenced by contentment and rest. It is, uh, it is beyond understanding, but we can comprehend it. We can walk in it. And I like the picture of a a sheep grazing by, uh, in a green pasture by the still waters, like the Psalm 23 picture. And as long as the sheep remains in the pasture, because a shepherd If you've ever read uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, the shepherd would carefully go and and look through a pasture before he would bring the sheep into it because there's a lot of noxious weeds and pests that can be out there. So he'll go through and actually weed out the noxious plants. He'll prepare an area, and then he will lead the sheep into that, and they'll rest there. And when a sheep, he says... You make me to lie down in green pastures. That's a place of contentment where sheep, they rarely lay down, especially when there's no shepherd around. But when the shepherd's around, they're protected. They feel safe. They hear his voice. They know him and they'll follow him. But if the sheep decides that that pasture looks a bit better or falls into a a rocky crag or goes off into the woods somewhere, well, it's out of the the watchful eye of the shepherd. And the shepherd will pursue that sheep, right? Jesus talked about the shepherd leaving 99 to pursue just one that has wandered. But when we wander and then we willfully wander, it's like we we won't experience the peace of God. We won't experience his protection as we could, the provision that he's given us. We put ourselves exposed to the elements, to hungry predators. But those who abide with Jesus we will experience that peace. And so I want to ask you today, what do you know of the peace of God, Christian? Is that something that you can say, I know what that's about. I actually experienced that in my life. It's something that that I have sunk my teeth into. It's something that, that I experience because of my relationship with God. Or is it something that we know we should have, but we're not really experiencing? So like I said, I needed to hear 
what God's Word said, and um, let's jump in in Isaiah 48, verse 1. God speaking to his people. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in righteousness, for they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, and your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze, even from the beginning I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, My idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. The children of Israel, they were God's chosen people. He gave them his laws. He caused his spirit to dwell in their midst in the temple. And they were people keen to speak of God. They were, they were fine to talk about God, to, to swear by his name. They called himself by God's name. But there was a problem with the people of Judah. They claimed to know God, but they didn't follow him, the passage says, in truth or righteousness. Because in their years of plenty, they began to follow after other idols. They were disobedient to God. And one might think that the miraculous deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt might be enough, just that all the the signs and the plagues, the Red Sea crossing, uh, delivering them from their enemies, the meeting them on Sinai, all these things that God did, like all that revelation would be enough to keep them following God and loyal only to God, but that wasn't the case. You would think he would have their loyalty forever, but... Men are forgetful and fickle, and time and time again they wandered from him. And he said, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. One way that God distinguished himself from all other gods that they were serving was prophecy. He would tell them what would happen, and then he would do it. As impossible as it might seem, he would accomplish it. He said, I'll bring you out of Egypt. And he did. He said he'd reveal himself to them on Sinai, and he did. He said, I'll bring you into Canaan. And he did. He caused the walls of Jericho to fall flat when they just walked around and then shouted when he told them to. But according to the passage, they were obstinate, stubborn, and self-willed. If you could please turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 25, we'll read of the cyclical nature of God's people. We see it in Judges, when they uh, would follow God for a season, then they would fall into strife, the enemies would buffet them, and then they would cry out to God, God would deliver them, and as long as the judge lived, they would keep serving God. But as soon as the judge died, then they would go back to their old ways, and in this we can even see a picture of us where we go through these seasons, maybe dry spells, distant times. So Nehemiah 9, starting in verse 25. Remember, Nehemiah was uh, one of the one, he was the one who helped build the wall around Jerusalem after the captivity. So the people had 
come back from Babylon. They had built the temple, but they hadn't built the walls. And Nehemiah was part of that group that came, and I think in 52 days, or a relatively short time, helped by God, they built the walls. So Nehemiah 9, 25. And they took strong cities and a rich land, and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed your prophets who testified against them to turn them to yourself. And they worked great provocations. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their enemies who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven. And according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried out to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Let's not assume the Jews are a special case. As if they alone have been disobedient at times or rebellious, God gave them rest, and then they did evil. It was a cycle that continued. Have not we also done this since coming to Christ? We have found rest for our souls in him, and yet, at times, we have shrugged at his commands. We have, we have really shrugged off our own sin, and we can't think that even as children of God, when we continue in sin, that it won't have a devastating effect on our ability to fellowship with others and with God. We read about that in 1 John chapter 1, that if we have fellowship with God, if we say we have fellowship with God, but we're walking in darkness, then we're lying. We're not in the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and with God, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In Ezekiel, uh, my family and I, after dinner, we read through a chapter, and we happen to be in Ezekiel, And it's interesting that God has Ezekiel speaking to his people, and he says, hey, they're a rebellious house. They're not going to listen to you, but eat the scroll. I'm going to put words in your mouth. You warn those who are in sin, and you warn those who are righteous, but you warn them that they could go into sin. But whether they hear you or not, it doesn't matter. You just speak my word. And I feel like this is a, a good word for me today, that whether... You happen to be in, a, in a, let's say, walking in the darkness, or you're walking in the light. It doesn't matter where you are, really. This is relevant for everyone. Because if you're in the darkness, the exhortation is come into the light. And if you're walking in the light, well, don't make the mistake of going into the darkness. Keep walking in the light, right? That's why it's written to Christians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12-14. Let, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There's no temptation, 
has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Speaking to Christians, see how he connects idolatry to that? So it's very fitting. We're not faithful in ourselves, but God is. We forget that God is in control of everything. For God's people, religion had really become superstition. And I was watching a little bit of the World Series, and it's funny when people were, uh, you know, you see they're like really locked in. And, and I had no vested interest in the game except to just see the World Series. And there were guys with like, they were, had their beads, and they were like praying. They, they had their thing, and they were rubbing it, and they had their hats inside out. It's called a rally cap, if you ever wonder. Like your team's not doing good, so you turn it inside out, or you wear it in a weird way, and uh, it's going to help your team win. And, and baseball is full of all sorts of superstitions that people think, you know, like, this is what's going to help my team win is me sitting in the bleachers or at home in front of a TV wearing my hat a weird way, and it's somehow going to affect the outcome. And they, they believe it until it doesn't work, and then you just try something else. And that's what God's people had done. He was really just a, another one of their superstitions. Something that, well, if things aren't working out, let's see if, if this will work. That's why they had gone to idols. So he says, well, this God's not working. How about we try to leverage this God? This will help us with our crops, and we'll use this one for that. And it just was a, a hodgepodge of idolatry. And it's not just them. It can be us. Or we look to ourselves. We look to our knowledge rather than God who gives us wisdom. So Isaiah 48, verse 6. You have heard, see all this, and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning. And before this day you have not heard them, lest you say, lest you should say, of course I knew them. Surely you did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago your ear was not opened. For I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. God had been blessing his people. He had been giving them abundant crops and they were attributing their fruitfulness to their idols. God had been blessing, but they thought their superstitions were the reason why they were doing so well. That's why they were loath to put them aside. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it can be quite annoying to try to teach someone something who already thinks they know it all. I don't know if you've ever had that situation. But uh, I had apprentices with no experience, no practical skill, and uh, whose pride potentially cost them a career because they just wouldn't listen. I remember one in particular. He was a pre-apprentice. So he's not even an apprentice yet. He's a pre-apprentice. And uh, I took him aside. He was on my job. And I said, well, this is how you do this. And I started measuring it out. And he's like, oh, I know. Like, oh, okay. Well, if an apprentice tells me he knows... I'm, he's getting cut off. I basically am just going to watch him now and see how much he knows. And so I, uh, it was very entertaining for me, of course, because I knew he had no idea what he was doing. He didn't know how to cut duck wrap. He didn't know how to measure it. So I'm watching him and I'm working and I see that, oh yeah, he's cut all his pieces too short. Okay. So now he's starting again and he's got it on the ground. It's just, 
it's a train wreck. But I, I'm kind of, as a journeyman would do, or foreman, kind of secretly enjoying this. Um, and then, and then he's struggling with the wire, and he, he's getting frustrated, and he's trying to tie it, and it's just terrible. So after about half an hour of just obviously not knowing what he's doing, he came over a bit sheepish, and he's like, hey, uh, can you show me how to do this? And I was like, are you ready to listen now? Okay. And I was glad to show him. I was glad to show him because he's going to help me on my job. Now, God's people didn't do that. They kept making the mistake, trying to do it on their own. They didn't humble themselves to come back to him and say, will you please just take me back? Just show me what to do. I don't know what to do. God would have been very glad for his people to return, but they were not willing. This wasn't a surprise to God, because he says, you've been treacherous from the womb. And I think, well, haven't I been treacherous from the womb? Right? I was conceived in sin. I, too, am am made of the same stuff. We're no better than they. And I think because we, in, in our day, there is knowledge everywhere. But see, Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, love edifies, and we can be very sure of ourselves because of the things that we know. And we imagine that because we know facts, we have power, but that's not the case. Knowing that I have, uh, I am paralyzed gives me no power to be able to fix my paralysis. Admitting that I'm depressed, it gives me no strength to pull myself out of the pit. In, in my own strength. Understanding doctrine gives me no power to ro- walk righteously. And being able to explain a verse and how it applies to a life gives me no strength to overcome my addictions. It doesn't help me at all. Now, people perish for a lack of knowledge, but just having knowledge, there's no power in it for Christian living. We can be content with information when God desires transformation. He wants us to be filled with His Spirit and to be walking in obedience to Him. And we think that if only God had the answer to my problem, I would find rest. But that's a deception because our rest is only found in Christ, not in just the facts. The facts are important. Don't get me wrong. But Jesus spoke to Jews the religious leaders who rejected him as Messiah in John 5, 38 and 39. He said, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. So they were searching the graphos, the writings, thinking that in the writings they had eternal life, but they didn't have the word the Logos, the Word who became flesh, Jesus Christ dwelling in them. And because they didn't have the Logos, because they didn't have the Word, they didn't have life, even though they had the Graphos, even though they had these and they had them down. They studied them, they searched them. So unless we abide in Christ, we don't have life regardless of our knowledge. Now take note, we can read God's words, but that doesn't mean we're hearing His voice. 
There's a difference between hearing something and understanding, and understanding something and heeding, actually doing it. Many facing judgment, Jesus says, will claim to know him. Say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all these things in your name? And he'll say, I never knew you. So it's not just you knowing God, but it's important that he knows you, right? In the context of that passage, saying, knowing that he knows you is paramount. And how can we know that he knows us? 1 John 5, 1 and 2, it says, because we keep his commandments and abide in his love. We walk in love. That's how people know we're Christians. That's how we can know that we've been born again. Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my name's sake, I will defer my anger, and for my praise, I will restrain it from you, so that I do not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned, and I will not give my glory to another. God loves people, no question. Jesus demonstrated God's love for us by dying on the cross for sinners. His people deserved fierce judgment for their sin, but he would not cut them off entirely. He says, I am going to test you. I am going to refine you. And for my own name's sake, I will do it. Now that's not dependent on my performance, is it? Because he's doing it for him. He's not doing it just for me. He's doing it for him. And that is really comforting. God would refine them in that furnace of affliction, and he would bring back a remnant to Israel, which he has done to this day. God restrains his anger for his name's sake. He tests and saves, it says, for the sake of his praise. Remember when... Uh, the children of Israel came out and they made that golden calf and they were worshiping it. And God says, hey, I'm going to go down and destroy this people and make of you a great nation. And Moses says, wait, wait, God, why should the Egyptians, this is in Exodus 2, why should they be given cause to speak evil of your name? They're going to say that you brought them out of the out of Egypt just to kill them in the wilderness. Remember the promise you made to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, whom you swore by yourself. And hearing this, God relented, and he says, okay. You gave the right answer. You said the right thing. That could have been a test for Moses. For Moses like, oh, of me, a great nation. No, he turned it back and said, Lord, you said this. For the glory of your name, do what you've said. And God's like, I will. <laughs> I will do what I've said. God would test his people, but it also restore them. And you might be going through an area, a, a time of testing right now in some way. I feel in, in many cases, I too am going through areas of testing. God's testing me to see if I will be casting my cares on my wife or I'll be casting my cares on Jesus. If I'll be honest and transparent about the things that I'm dealing with or that I am going to try to act like I'm perfect and fine, and I don't have problems. God's motivated by his love for us in preserving us, in refining us, in making us more like Christ. Now, God loved his people too much to allow them to remain in idolatry. That's one reason why he sent the Babylonians to chasten them, to bring them into captivity. 
Now, we can be foolish in falling into idolatry and mistake God's chastening for an attack of the enemy. And we think we're under attack. Oh, I'm under attack. And God is responsible for that. He's doing it for the glory of his name. And yet we feel, if I'm getting opposition, if I have bad feelings, if things are not going well, it must be the devil. It must be Satan attacking me. And and like what Andrew was saying from Habakkuk, he was shocked, offended, that God would use the Chaldeans to chasten God's people. He's saying, they're the heathen, they're under judgment. How can they judge us? And God would use them because they were his instrument. He said, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And then maybe they thought when they were in captivity in Babylon that God would raise up from among them a redeemer like he had with Moses. From among their people, God would raise up a deliverer. But who did he use? Cyrus, the Persian, my anointed, the only Gentile that was ever said of. So God had these plans that just the people could not grasp. They were thinking like, whoa, God, what are you doing? Going into captivity in Babylon. He says, hey, build houses, plant vineyards, live there. A day's coming when I'm going to send you back home. And then Cyrus came and delivered them. And, and God wasn't done uh, blowing his people's minds. I mean, think of Jesus. Right? The Jews, to this day, they don't believe that the Messiah is going to be God-made flesh. They think the Messiah is going to be a man who is going to establish this Jewish nation. You go to Israel today, they'll say, no, no, the Messiah is not God. The Messiah is a, is a man, and he will have a son who will like rule after him, and another son who will rule after him, like a king. But Jesus came and his disciples say, Is, are now, now are you going to establish your kingdom? Can I sit on your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus is like, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is within you. He was going to establish a spiritual kingdom and ultimately he will bring a physical kingdom to this earth where Jesus will set his foot down and uh, on the Mount of Olives and he will establish his throne in Jerusalem. So when things go wrong in your life, don't assume that the devil is the cause of it. Though we can be attacked, we see that with Job, God said, all right, I allow you to buffet him with restrictions, right? There were some caveats there. Don't touch him. And then don't take his life. So God was in control of that. He allowed that to happen. Plenty of examples that we can look at. Wasn't it God who allowed the ark of God to be taken and Hophni and Phinehas, the wicked priests, to be killed? And when the ark was taken into the, the, the cities of the Philistines, for months he plagued them because of their, their haughtiness against God. Didn't God remove the Holy Spirit from King Saul and send an unclean spirit to chasten him back to God? Didn't God allow Jerusalem to fall but for the Babylonians? God did that. Okay, it wasn't a, an attack of the enemy. That was God doing this to chasten his people because he loved them for his name's sake. Think if God did not intervene with trials and painful 
times when you have gone astray. Just think about that for a moment. Imagine where you would be if God had never convicted you of sin. There's not one of us who's righteous, right? There's none who does good. Who among us would have repented if God hadn't convicted us and made us desperate for salvation? It's not our righteousness which brought us to God, but it was feeling alone. It was feeling condemned. It was depression, suffering, pain, guilt before a holy God that brought us to our senses and said, I need God. I need to have peace with God. So believer, if you feel defeated today, I don't believe it's because of the devil, but because of God who loves you. He's allowing things. He's in control. He's the one to run to. He's the one where you have hope forever. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him, and his way will prosper. I love how God refers to Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Then he follows it up with, I am the first and I am the last. And Jesus himself referred to himself as this title in the book of the Revelation several times, notably in Revelation 22, verse 12 and 13. He says, and behold, I, this is in red, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The heavens, the earth, everything was made through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. We read that in John chapter 1. And it's like the heavens stand at attention when God speaks. And he says, won't my people also hearken to me? Won't they respond to the things that I say? God allowed the children of Israel to go into captivity, but he affirmed his love in verse 14. The Lord loves him. Whether we're living like Jacob, a deceiver, or we're living like Israel, one who is blessed by God, he loves him. He loves you, and he loves me, even when we struggle, even when we're hurting. God would bring deliverance in a way his people never expected, culminating in Jesus Christ going to the cross for sins, a sinless sacrifice. The death and resurrection of Jesus was a shock even to Christ's disciples. They didn't expect that. I guarantee you the way God is going to deliver you is not going to be in the way you think he will. He just is way bigger than that. And I love how he, he surprises us in beautiful ways. He shows his grace. 
I was reading this morning that passage in Hebrews 11, and I love where it talks about Sarah, where it says, you know, who being past childbearing, she judged him faithful who had promised, and so she was fruitful. And and sometimes I look at my life, and I, I don't see any fruit there. I'm, I'm like, it's it's God's fruit anyway, but but I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels sometimes. Like, I don't feel like I, I am living up to what I want to live up to, much less anyone else. I don't, I don't have to look anywhere else for fruit to, to feel better about myself or anything. But when I, I look at my own life and I'm like, Lord, I want to be more fruitful for you. I just don't see it. Know that even in Sarah's old age, what did she do? She counted, she judged God to be faithful and she was fruitful. And so if I judge God to be faithful and I trust his word, I too will be fruitful even past my childbearing years. So this is a great, a great thing for us to consider. Isaiah 48, 16, come near to me, hear this. So God's not pushing people away. He's entreating people to listen to him, to come near to him. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there, and now the Lord God and His Spirit have sent me. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. Oh, that you had heeded my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your descendants also would have been like the sand, and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand. His name would not have been cut off, nor destroyed from before me. The one that Lord God and His Spirit have sent is Christ. Do you see that there? Come near to me. He hasn't spoken. Jesus is the one who's been there from the beginning. So it's not speaking of Isaiah. It's not speaking of Cyrus. They were not there at the beginning, but Jesus was there at the beginning. Now, we can apply the fact that they have been sent by God, they've been called by God, uh, and we can put ourselves in that place too, that as believers, we've been born again, we've been filled with the Spirit, we've been called, sent, and he says, come near. And that is a glorious truth, that God's not only saved us for heaven, but he's also sent us into workplaces and into situations and around family members where we can bring glory to his name and speak forth his praise. Consider God's description. It says, The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord, your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you by the way you should go. So the Lord, He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's our Redeemer. He's not only purchased us with the blood of Christ, but He's also the avenger of blood. He's the one who takes vengeance upon His enemies. He's pure and sacred. He teaches us to profit and he leads us in the way we should go. God should have been the ultimate authority for his people, but he laments here their choice to go their own way. Can you sense the longing here? Where he says, oh, that you had heeded my commandments. God knew the right things for them to do. Your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. It's like God had such peace, storehouses of peace and righteousness reserved for his people, 
but they weren't willing to enter in. And the same longing we see expressed by Jesus when he lamented over Jerusalem in Matthew 23, 37, and 38. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. God didn't want his house to be desolate. To be desolate is to be solitary and lonesome. He says, I wanted to gather you together. I wanted you to have fellowship with me and with one another. He wants people to be at peace with him. So I ask you, are you experiencing peace with God at the moment? And if we say we have peace with God and we have no peace with those around us, then I would wonder. Because he says, if you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, the love of God isn't in you. Because if you love God, you will love your brother. So we say, oh, I have peace with God, but I'm at war with everybody. (laughs) Even myself. Well, then, are you walking in the peace of God? It's It's there like a pasture with still waters. It's beautiful. It's there for you. But we must be willing to walk in it. And we can only find where that place is through Jesus the good shepherd who leads us there. He's the one who gives us rest for our souls. He's the one who cried out on the great day of the feast. He says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. That's what he said to the woman at the well in Samaria. He says, if you drink of this water, you'll be thirsty again. But the water that I have, the living water, you drink from that, it'll be springing up in you into eternal life, a wellspring of everlasting life. Oh, Lord, give me this water that I may drink always. This sounds great. And it was through faith in him that she experienced that peace. She goes from confusion, adulteress, to is this not the Christ? And many people came to Christ because of her word. Psalm 119, 165, it says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. How good is your balance these days? We easily stumbled, stumbling around at times. Well, it says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. Realizing that God is our rock. He is our foundation. We don't have to be stumbled by the things we see by the things that that happen to us. We have strength in Him. God's made peace with us when we were once eternally separated from Him by sin. Ephesians chapter 2, it says that Jesus has come. He is our peace, having broken that middle wall of separation. It's like, we're here in the darkness. There's this wall, and God, who's light and righteous, is on this side. Jesus has come, broken down the wall, so that we can come to Him. He's come to us, but we have to go to him. And he's made peace where there was no peace. And there may be people in your life where you're like, "Ah, there's no peace there. Now, if Jesus can make peace with sinners who were dead in trespasses and sins, then by God's grace, we can walk in peace without stumbling because of who we have in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Isaiah 48, 20. Go forth from Babylon, 
Flee from the Chaldeans with the voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the water to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. God had sent Cyrus to deliver his people from Babylon after the 70 years there. And he urged them to return to Israel. Now, they had done what God had said. He said, build houses, plant vineyards, dwell on them, make a life for yourself in Babylon. But then a day came when he says, go back to Jerusalem, build my house. And they're like, hmm, kind of have a good life here. Would you believe that there were many Jews who did not go back to Israel? Because it was a desolate wasteland. They were happy with their vineyards and their comforts and their homes and their extended family. They had put down some roots in Babylon. Yet, they were without the presence of God, the worship of God. But to go back, it meant work. It meant rebuilding. It meant building the temple, facing enemies on every side. Not having a wall around you. Cyrus wasn't their savior. God was their savior, right? He's the one who called Cyrus. So he says, go back, guys. Trust me. When I brought you out of Egypt, did you lack for anything? No, you had everything you needed. I even opened that rock to give you water on two occasions, and you drank of that water. That's why he's mentioning this here. See, you're going back to a desolate place, but know that I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you. It'll be fine because you have me. He finishes by saying, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And who is wicked but someone who does not believe the word of the Lord? says, you can have your vineyards, you can have your homes, you can have your, your comforts here, but there'll be no peace for you unless you heed my word, unless you trust me, unless you return to me with your whole heart and you lay aside your idols and you decide to go my way. Genuine peace with God, it would be like a river if they would return to him and walk in obedience. And so the question is, is it possible for us to settle for a superficial peace when God has peace for us like a river? You know, you've, you've had the hot day where you, you wet the cloth and you're like, woo, you know, you kind of put it over your head, keep the sun off your head. But it's not too long before that, that cloth gets pretty dry and hot again. That's like a superficial peace. It's a little bit of comfort, but it's fleeting. And we can definitely do that instead of drinking deep, being in the river, you know, like immersed in the peace of God, rather than just dabbing it on your forehead, you know, kind of wetting the neck. You guys have seen the little spray bottle with a fan? I've never had one of those. Can anyone vouch for how great they are? Okay, well, it's, it's I've seen them before. We can be content with less conflict. God wants communion. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to have fellowship with him. 
He told his people in Jeremiah 8, he says, The stork, the crane, and the turtle know their appointed times. These are not clean animals. He says, they know when it's time to migrate. They know when it's time to breathe. They know where to go. But you guys, it's like you don't know. How is this possible? From the priest to the prophet, you've all done wickedly. The people that I set to rule, they've gone after their own ways. They're, They're like greedy dogs. They're lying down, just making themselves fat off the offerings of my people. If we could turn together, we'll close with this. Isaiah 57, 15 through 21. It's just a, it's a similar passage. That, that paints a different picture. And may the Lord speak to you. I don't know where, where, I don't presume to know where anyone is at today with the Lord. It is not for me to judge or to imagine things, to be suspicious of anything. What I'm called to do is to examine my own heart. And I can say at times, this is me. I'm the one who cannot rest because I haven't been obedient. But praise the Lord. We're called not to be weary in doing good. Even when we've done the wrong thing, repentance is the good thing, the right thing. Don't be weary in repenting. Continue repenting, confessing, and walking in the right way. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was angry and struck him. I hid and was angry, and he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will also lead him and restore comforts to him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off, And to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. God's like, I see the wanderings. I see the sin, but I'll heal you if you'll come to me. How awesome is that? I have seen his ways and will heal him. He doesn't say, I'll see his ways and destroy him. He wants to restore us. And he says, I'm give, I'm offering peace whether you're near to me or you're really far from me. Peace to everyone. God offers peace. He offers you peace today. Peace like a river. Righteousness like the waves of the sea. Continual. Constant crashing on the shores, refreshing. In God, we have healing and wholeness nothing on this planet can supply. There's no medication or drug that can make you whole. Good counsel can't do this by itself. There's no sacrifice you can give. There's no amount of beating yourself up over your faults that can rid you of the guilt. 
Are you willing to come today to Jesus to find rest for your soul, to have peace like a river, finally be at peace with God? Is that the desire of your heart? Are you ready to believe God's word? Let him gather in you in his arms so that you can know him. We're going to uh, now uh, celebrate, remember the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians that we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And it always seemed, I guess, growing up, a strange thing. Like, well, why don't we focus on the good stuff? You know, focus on the resurrection, that Jesus is alive. And that's very valid. However, Jesus wants us to proclaim his death till he comes because that is the way that God demonstrated his love for us. It says so in Romans 5.8. That God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And through his blood, we have the atonement. We are washed. We are cleansed from all sin. Not only are we washed from sin, but the righteousness of Christ is then imputed. It's given freely to us. We are righteous without sin. None. It's not like you may have seen in in the old... I remember seeing some old tract and there was this picture on Judgment Day and, and people going before God and it was like your whole life, every sin was being played before everyone to see and, and how shameful and humiliating that would be uh, to have that happen. But your sins, if you're in Christ, are gone. There's no memory of them. You have been not just expunged, you, you are cleansed. And what not just a relief, what a joy that we can be washed clean of all sin. We can be free of all guilt and shame. We can have fellowship now with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And he's offered us this gift that we can, we can open. It's like, you know, you've ever received a gift that you had to wait to open? And you're like, oh, I, like I, it's the worst thing when I buy a gift and I really want to just give it to him right away. And I've got to wait for like a month. That's like brutal. But God's like, open it now. Receive my salvation now. Walk in newness of life now. You don't have to wait for heaven to have peace like a river. Have it today. It's for you. Whether you're far off or near, he has that for you. It's it's his will for your life. Let's thank him. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God, that you've given us Christ, that Jesus has come and demonstrated his love, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us, and that he wasn't overcome by sin or death, but he proved victor by rising three days later as he said. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to be our Savior. Thank you for washing us free of the guilt and the shame and giving us peace like a river. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill our hearts to overflowing, that we'd rejoice in the salvation you've supplied by your grace, and that we wouldn't go after idols, we wouldn't walk in the dark anymore. Lord, we'd come into the light as you are in the light and have fellowship with one another and with Jesus, with the Father, through one Spirit. Lord, thank you for this word. I pray that we would walk in it, that we'd receive it. 
that we'd rejoice in it, Lord. Too long have we remained mired in guilt and shame when you have freedom, forgiveness, and salvation. So, Lord, have your way in each heart today. Be glorified as we, as you minister to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.